I remember the first time I heard it. Ding. Followed by important life-preserving information that I would need in the event of an emergency. And yet, as I looked around, no one, and I mean no one, was paying attention. And literally, every time since, when I go and sit on a plane, and I hear the ding, followed by important, life-preserving information, no one listens. Literally every time, no one listens. I remember on a recent flight, one flight attendant said, if you could just pretend to give me your attention as we go over the safety features of this Boeing 747. When Christmas rolls around each year, pastors oftentimes feel like those flight attendants. Reviewing familiar information with those who've heard it before and thus lack fresh interest. I appreciate what Martin Luther said as he recognized this in those whom he was preaching to. Martin Luther said, oh, we are often so cold and indifferent to this great joy that has been given us. For this is indeed the greatest gift which far exceeds all else that God has created, yet we believe so sluggishly. Even though the angels proclaim and preach and sing and their lovely song sums up the whole of the Christian faith, for glory to God in the highest is the very heart of worship. I pray that we as a church would not be numbered among those who believe so sluggishly as we contemplate the greatest gift that's ever given. And one of the reasons we understand the magnitude of the worth of this gift is that in its coming, we hear so much singing. I mean, that seems to be the fitting way that good news is delivered. Good news of great joy is delivered through singing. The opening chapters of, of Luke appear to be a divinely inspired musical, featuring solos and voices that are harmonizing and celebrating the intervention of God through the birth of his son. And so this morning, we are continuing our Advent series, The Songs of Christmas whereby we're seeking to pause in the midst of the, the holiday rush that so quickly comes upon each and every one of us so that we would be able to listen to those first songs that rang out surrounding that first Christmas in Bethlehem. The aim of this sermon series is, is really the aim of the songs that were sung. It's to encourage us to treasure Christ. And what's going to be evident is that there was a treasuring of Christ that happened as these songs went forth. But not only is this an evidence of that, these songs are an invitation to us, an invitation that we would lean in this Christmas season and that we would treasure this gift. These songs are meant to elicit a response. All songs are, mis are meant to elicit a response. And these songs are no different. Each of these songs emerge in the midst, as Bob laid out last week, of bleak, undesirable, and challenging circumstances. And so the invitation this morning is for us at some measure to see that if that just described your year, bleak, undesirable, and challenging... I think we will learn that just as there was a reason to sing during those times, there's also reason for us to sing today. There is a reason for you to sing in the midst of undesirable and challenging and difficult circumstances. And for some of you, your circumstances and your trials this year have so twisted your life that you may be here thinking, I have lost any reason to sing. 
Or perhaps you're thinking, uh, I don't have room or even, I don't know how to find joy or experience happiness. Friends, these songs remind us there is a reason to sing. Even in the life that is lined with difficulty and trial, even in the life that is marked by good and potentially negligent in loving God most, there's a reason to sing. And so this morning we will look at Zechariah's song. Your translation may read Zechariah. All scholars and commentators are agreed that that is a, an alternate spelling, same person. So in view, if you read Zacharias, Zechariah, uh, and I have been studying in two translations this week, and so I will probably refer to both of those ways of saying it, and I'm speaking of the same person. But let's pray this morning as we listen into this song so that we would be convinced that our souls would, be, would leave believing there is a reason to sing. Let's pray. Our holy triune God, we pause before you with our Bibles open. We humbly ask that you might help us think rightly, that you might help us believe unerringly, and that you would help us obey without compromise, or reservation. We need your help in the speaking this morning. We need your help in the listening this morning. And we want to declare, both speaker and listener, it is to you alone that we look for hope. For it is in you alone that we find the reason to always sing. And so would you allow us to behold precious truths in your word, and would you allow us to behold Christ? We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to open with me in, uh, to Luke chapter 1. If you are in need of following along in a Bible, I would encourage you, there are two there in front of you. If you pick up the New American Standard Version, you can turn it to page 44. In the New Testament, there are two page 44s in that Bible. If you are in the Old Testament, page 44, this will be a confusing sermon. <laughs> page 44 in the New Testament. And Bob set the, the stage last week really well, but I just want to remind us. In the last words that the Old Testament prophet Malachi spoke, Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, this is what we read. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of their children to the fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. The last word that we hear as the Old Testament chapter comes to a close is God through the prophet Malachi saying, I am going to send you a prophet Elijah who's going to do a great work in your midst. And then there is 400 years of silence. 400. Waiting. Longing. Yearning. Generation comes, generations go. And no word from God. Has God forgotten? And then suddenly... In Luke chapter 1, all heaven breaks loose, announcing the birth of Christ and announcing the birth, birth of this one who will come as a forerunner of Christ, one who many will mistaken as the prophet Elijah, John the Baptist. Angels are deployed with good news of great joy. And the story of Zechariah picks up earlier in Luke chapter 1. Zechariah was a priest married to Elizabeth, and they were old, like past having kids age kind of old. Zechariah is a man of great faith. He's well acquainted with the scriptures. He's serving in the temple when an angel of the Lord appears to him to announce that his 
barren and old wife will have a son. But not just any son, this will be the son that's the forerunner to the Messiah. Zacharias, his mind would have gone back very quickly to those last words. Could it be? Could it be? And what we find in Luke chapter 1, in verse 19, is that this news that the angel Gabriel brought was intended to be news of great joy. It was intended to thrill his soul. And yet we find this man of God ministering in the temple, overcome with unbelief. Unbelief. He knew all of the stories of God's faithfulness, of how he had worked supernaturally amidst the natural. And in the moment where he is confronted with news of great joy, he responds in unbelief. And a consequence in that moment of his unbelief is that he becomes unable to speak. And if you were to look at Luke chapter 1, verse 62, there's a moment where people are trying to get Zechariah's attention. And what we find is that he's probably not just lost the ability to speak, but also the ability to hear. And this punishment may seem very cruel, may seem like, ah, in a moment of just kind of unbelief, surely he was frightened to no end, seeing an angel. But in this moment, was the punishment a little too severe? I think the punishment isn't too severe. I think the punishment is theologically perfect. Think about this. The priest's voice is taken away until the day when the voice crying out in the wilderness has arrived. And just... Just a quick note of application. Beware, and may we be on guard against the encroaching, ever-present, lurking unbelief. You and I are not immune to unbelief. And the ways in which we are most prepared to fight unbelief is by leaning in to growing and and fanning into flame those things that strengthen our belief. Friends, this season may be busy. Do not neglect your daily disciplines of walking with the Lord in his word and in prayer. And surround yourself with people who will love you enough to peer in and to care for your soul. Where you can ask honest questions about things that you're wrestling with. And just about ways and moments in which you may be drifting away. It's worth it. And so if Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25, really kind of captures the moment of announcement of the birth of John the Baptist, then Luke chapter 1, verse 57, picks up on the moment of fulfillment. The moment of fulfillment. In verse 58, what we find is that births in these days were a community event. And this birth was unique because it was a barren woman who was very old, and she has delivered a son. And then you get to verse 59, and what we realize is not only, do, uh, not only were births a community event, but verse 59 gives us the impression that maybe these people thought naming the children were a community event. And so there's a big to-do about what they're going to name this child. All of those there uh, in attendance cast their vote, this is going to be Zechariah Jr. Of course it's going to be Zechariah Jr. To which Elizabeth says, no, his name will be John. And the neighbors say, no, 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 it's got to be Zechariah Jr. And so they ask the dad, Zechariah. They wave at him, get his attention. And Zechariah writes emphatically, his name is not shall be, his name is John. And the neighbors are filled with awe. And then what we find is that suddenly and unexpectedly, Zechariah's voice is restored. 
Why is that? Why is his voice restored? Naming of children were the privilege that were given to fathers in those days. But if you were to go back and read Luke chapter 1, verse 13, but an angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been, been heard, and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. This evidence is the fact that these nine months were not nine months of wasted suffering. These nine months accomplished something. It moved this man of God from unbelief and, and what seems to be the absurd to belief in God. Wholehearted belief in God. So then in the moment that he's given to just put on display what has happened in your heart and mind over these last nine months... Zacharias stakes his claim on, thus says the Lord. Though this may be the father's privilege of naming children, this child has already been named. God has named this child. Friends, side application. Suffering tends to make us either better or bitter. And we learn, even from this example, of what it looks like to not waste our sufferings, not waste our trials. They're meant to make us emerge fully believing all the more in God himself. And so whatever trial it is that you're facing this morning, I pray that you would just see God's kindness. He hasn't put you through that to punish you necessarily. He's not put you through that to get back at you, to stick it to you. No, he has put you, he's allowed you to walk through suffering, potentially as a consequence of sin, but always with the hopes that you would emerge believing in him more fully, trusting in him unreservedly, giving him all of your allegiance. God not only brought this child into the world, he also has already named this child. And so verse 66 tells us that all of the uproar about who the name is going to be has now changed. And now the question is, what kind of child is this going to be? And that's when Zechariah opens his mouth and he sings this song. And all week, and if I'm honest, even thinking about this sermon series, I thought, this sermon is going to let us know it's going to center on John the Baptist. And I've been pleasantly corrected in my thinking. This song has little to do with John the Baptist, and it has everything to do with the God who graciously gives this child. This song centers on God. Zacharias hasn't spoken for nine months and at the moment that his voice is restored, we don't hear complaining. We don't hear, let me tell you about how bad it's been. No, this brother has something important to declare. And he opens his mouth, and this whole 67 through 79, it is two sentences in the Greek. He barely stops to take a breath. This song is known as the Benedictus. Just like last week, Bob preached on the Magnificat. The Magnificat, the Benedictus, that, that's because the first word, they're, they're known as those things because the first word in the Latin is this translation. So the first word that comes out of Zechariah's mouth is blessed, Benedictus. This is a song that is overflowing in its praise to God. This is a song that if we were just sort of to take it, put this song in a towel, wring it out, what we would find is that the Old Testament imagery just drips and, and just leaks everywhere. And verse 67 reminds us that this isn't just Zechariah's thoughts. This is a divinely inspired song. The Holy Spirit has come upon him as he utters these words of truth. I was helped this week in my sermon study, hearing one pastor reference this man, James Watt. James Watt has gone through, uh, Watts, plural, James Watts, has gone through and just done a study about the hymns that are found all throughout the scriptures. 
And he says that hymns in the Bible serve the purpose much like a Broadway play. Hmm. Let's listen to what he says. In contrast to the prose dialogue that's spoken between characters and passably observed by the audience, Broadway plays songs are often performed facing the audience, addressing the audience, to establish a more direct rapport between actor and audience. The most successful numbers may elicit such response from the spectators that they become what we know as show stoppers, bringing the action to a momentary halt. And what we would be well served this morning to realize is that as Zechariah opens his mouth, he turns to face us. He turns to sing this song to us, to engage us. And in many ways, this song is a show stopper. It brings the action to a halt. It's meant to elicit from us a response so that we ensure that we are not sluggish this Christmas time. This isn't Les Mis. This isn't Hamilton. This is the celebration of the incarnation of the Son of God and the unique role of Zechariah's son for the Messiah. This is sung this morning for your benefit. And so as we peer into the song, I have begged the Spirit, would you allow us to respond in awe and wonder? And so this morning, I'd like for us to consider four reasons that Zechariah erupts into praise in this song. Those four reasons will serve as our sermon points. First reason. God has visited and redeemed his people. God has visited and redeemed his people. We see this in verses 68 and 69. After stating the main point of the song, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, the next word there is for, F-O-R. For, that's right. And that's indicating the reasoning or the causes for such praise. So, blessed be the God, the Lord God of Israel. Why, why blessings to him? For he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. He has visited and accomplished redemption. And what's Think about this. What's, what's interesting is that he has not yet visited. The Messiah has not yet been born. Redemption has not yet been accomplished through the work of Christ. And so with so much certainty, Zechariah sings as though it's already happened. That's how much confidence he has of what it is that he's singing about. He speaks in past tense. Of a future event. You see, for centuries, 400 years, the people of God had languished under the conviction that God had withdrawn from them. And now they hear in this song that He has visited. But He hasn't just visited, He has visited in order to redeem. Redemption. Redemption expresses the payment of a price to release someone from their bondage. Bondage to what? Bondage to sin. John chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. And so put these two things together. He has visited and redeemed. Apart from divine visitation, redemption is not possible. That's why we throw so much energies into the incarnation, because without God coming and visiting, redemption doesn't happen. They were in desperate need of this divine visitation. Friends, you and I are in desperate need of this divine visitation. Salvation, redemption is not just some human creation. No, it's the effect of a divine visitation. Redemption comes from God above. It comes from God alone. It does not come from us. The provision of this redemption was heaven coming to earth. 
the supernatural invading the natural. And so then it's most appropriate for Zechariah to bless God alone, for salvation is from God alone. That's why this song is not about John the Baptist. John the Baptist would be secondary. This song is about God who has visited and has redeemed. And to help us understand this redemption that's been accomplished, Zechariah speaks in terms of a horn of salvation that's raised up in the house of David. That imagery of the horn of salvation, it's a common, uh, the imagery of a horn is a common Old Testament metaphor of power and strength. You were, your mind would immediately run to a massive ram that would show its power by the way in which it utilized its horn. And he's speaking of God raising up this Messiah of great power and strength who will deliver the people of God from their enemies. And so this Christmas, just like every Christmas, Christmas is really about the ultimate demonstration of the power and the strength of God to deliver and to save his people. To be sure, the people, when they heard this, they would have been thinking, yes, we are going to have physical deliverance. Yes, we are going to have political deliverance. Yes, there will be a new kingdom that's established. And yet they overlooked the need and the reality of a much greater deliverance that they were in need of. The deliverance for the forgiveness of their sin, the deliverance needed for restoration with God. Do you see it this morning? Do you understand it this morning? When we wrong others, it causes separation. And anytime there's separation, there then becomes this ledger for justice. And friends, it is a cause for singing Whenever sinful condition, their sinful condition in Zechariah's day, our sinful condition today, when that sinful condition causes a separation, it's worthy of God's abandonment. That's what our sin is worthy of, the abandonment of God. It's worthy of the fury of his justice. And yet Zechariah stands up and he declares that though you are worthy of abandonment and fury of justice, he has visited the opposite of abandon. He has come near. And the opposite of just unleashing fury and wrath and justice would be lavishing redemption. Friends, this song is meant to melt your heart. To see the magnitude of the gift and to understand how in the world it would come to find the likes of you. That God would bend so low to come to earth in order that every barrier would be removed from our way to worship and to enjoy the God we were created for. And the God we are accountable to. How would he remove every barrier? He would remove it by living the perfectly righteous life at every turn. The one that's required of God. And then he would remove it by dying the most cursed death. Absorbing the wrath of God as a substitute for all who would believe. And then he would show us in his resurrection... The keys that are dangling from his hands are not keys of just sort of fate and coincidence. No, it's the keys of sin and death. He is more powerful than even our worst and most ultimate enemies. So this Christmas really is about God who has come to earth to do something we couldn't do, to absorb something we're deserving of, and then to show he's still in control as enslaving as sin is, and as universally powerful as death is, Jesus alone is more powerful. That's why he came. He is indeed God with us. 
And so to my friends that are not Christians hearing this this morning, I just want to plead with you, give up trying. Give up trying to please God as though your works could merit something from him. No, what you and I bring to the table are just more and more reasons for his wrath. Give up running away from him as though somehow you have found a place to hide from the God who is in all things and knows all things. Give up. Give up this Christmas season and just lay all arms down and receive by faith his gift of redemption. This is why Christmas is a time of singing. Because our sinful and broken hearts and lives that are in need of a renovation and are in need of redemption. And the good news is that God the Son has come to do just that. That's the first reason Zechariah sings. The second reason Zechariah sings is because God is faithful to all that he has foretold. God is faithful to all that he has foretold. We see this in verses 70 through 73. He's faithful. Verse 70, he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old. Verse 69, he mentions and references the house of David. Verse 73, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father. After centuries of silence, and personally for Zechariah, for nine months of silence, he erupts in a, in, into song because not just God is visited and has redeemed, but because God is faithful. He is faithful. This plan of redemption was a clear example and reminder that God keeps every one of his promises. The promises that he made to Abraham, the promises that he made to David, the whole Old Testament has been anticipating the fulfillment of his promises since Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He promised that there would be a serpent crusher who would come. Where in the world and how in the world would he get here? And he just begins to unfold promise after promise. Yes and amen. Yes and amen. The whole Old Testament anticipating this. Prophets were raised up speaking of this coming Messiah who would usher in salvation. God calls Abram out and says, I am going to make you a great nation, a great people, a people for my own possession, and I'm going to give you a land. And not only am I going to give you a land, and I'm going to make you a people, but probably, not probably, but clearly the most The most rewarding piece of this covenant I'm making with you is I am going to be your God. I'm going to give you me. And God's people then are enslaved for 400 years in the land of Egypt. They cry out for a deliverer, and God hears them. And Moses shows up. Deuteronomy 18.18 says, everybody's thinking, maybe Moses is the one. Deuteronomy 18.18 says, Moses is not the one. But there's going to come one who's a prophet like Moses who will do more than Moses will do than Joshua. Joshua leads them into the promised land. Ah, maybe Joshua is the one. Joshua is not the one. And then Judges. We read of Gideon and Samson. And then Kings. And then David, David is raised up. Is David the one? Perhaps David will be the one. 2 Samuel chapter 7, David is not the one. And then prophets, prophets are raised up to warn his people and to announce to them over and over that though it may seem like God has forgotten, the Messiah is going to come. Isaiah calls this one who will come, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. Isaiah also said that he would be the one that would take away all our sin. Jeremiah called this coming Messiah the righteous branch from the line of David who would gather his flock from all the nations. Ezekiel said of this promised one, he would remove our sins forever and create with us an everlasting covenant. Wait, wait, he's already made covenants, uh, an everlasting covenant whereby we would have new hearts to be able to enjoy this covenant. 
Ezekiel says he will be a faithful shepherd who will seek the lost and bring back the stray and bind up the wounded and strengthen the weak. Daniel said of this promised one that he would be given everlasting dominion and glory that would never pass away. Hosea said of this promised one that God, he would be God and he would enter into history himself to decisively heal and secure salvation. Micah said that this promised one would come from a tiny town of Bethlehem and he would come to shepherd the flock in the strength of the Lord. And Malachi, the last of the Old Testament prophets, said that there would be one like Elijah, the greatest of all Old Testament prophets, who would come before the Messiah to prepare the way of the Lord. Zechariah lifts his voice on this day. He is singing because God foretold all that would happen, and God has been meticulously faithful to every word that he spoke. Friends, there is reason this morning for you to sing. Though your circumstances may not feel like it, you have a God who is meticulously faithful to every word that he has spoken. And so when he says he will be faithful to complete what he began, you can trust him at his word. When he says he will never leave or forsake you, you can trust him at his word, no matter what your feelings say. Oh, would we be a people who would let our feelings be informed by his promises? Zechariah is, Zechariah is looking back over everything that God has said and that God has done, and he celebrates this great truth that through all of the myriad, just hundreds, thousands of little stories that run from Genesis to Revelation, there is one. There is one dominant, bold thread that we're meant to be overwhelmed by. And Christmas sort of brings that thread, gives it new color. Just pops a little bit for our eyes. There is one single unified plan of salvation for sinners in every age. And it focuses and centers on Jesus the Christ. The whole Bible is about Jesus the Christ. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. He is the center of God's work. He's the focus of God's word. He's the one to whom the scriptures point us to on every page. Take any strand of God's promises in the Bible, and you can trace them through the Bible, and it will lead you here to this child who's coming after John the Baptist, who lies in a manger. That would then lead to a man hanging dead upon a cross, which would then lead to a resurrected king reigning on a throne. Friends, there is reason to sing this Christmas. God is faithful to every word he has spoken. Trust him. Trust him and let's sing. Third reason for Zechariah's eruption. Number three, God rescued his people for a reason. God rescued his people for a reason. We see this in verses 74 and 75. Their paradigm for hope was flipped on its head. Because it becomes obvious at this point that this deliverance that's coming isn't a physical freedom. It's not a physical deliverance. It's a spiritual one. Listen in verses 74 and 75. To grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. The coming Messiah, whom John the Baptist would make way for, is not coming to put political enemies away. He's putting those enemies away that they could not defeat apart from him. We can, the need for God to defeat other enemies seems a lot, it just seems diminished. If we just have stronger armies and mightier forces, then we can defeat our enemies. But what are these enemies that they would be rescued from? The original audience would have considered God's faithfulness in the Exodus and in bringing his people to the promised land. They would have been familiar with the victories that God's people had experienced as they came into the promised land. They would have been familiar with the victories, but no victory 
over those enemies led to his people serving him without fear and in holiness. No, this is looking to enemies that have enslaved them. Enemies that they can't defeat. This is looking to the enemies of sin and Satan and death. All of God's people are people who have been rescued to serve him without terror or dread. Why? How can we serve him without terror or dread, the one who's holy and will judge all things? Because that judgment has been satisfied in Christ. And thus... God's people can live in holiness. This coming Messiah is the antidote to both sin's guilt and to sin's power. I just think of the hymn, Rock of Ages. Bob quoted Be Glad last week. I figured I had to quote a psalm this week. (laughs) Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. Pardon and renewal. Jesus deals not just with our standing in the court of heaven before God, but also with our perverted hearts that are inclined towards evil and disobedience and rebellion. He provides a clean conscience. He provides power to walk in godliness. John Piper put it this way, God's aim in raising a horn of salvation is not merely to liberate an oppressed people, but to create a holy and righteous people who do not live in fear of God. That's the beauty of this redemption. To be Christian, the church, this is your mandate. To be Christian means that we live lives of purity, obeying the commands of God, serving God in holiness and in righteousness all our days. Let's not make it crazy complicated. It's waking up one step in front of the other, and the, the tune of our song is, I trust you more than anything else. Can we see why this is good news? It ought to lead us to sing. Because we live in darkness. We're unable to see. Jesus, the light of the world, pierces the darkness, gives us light of life. We live, many of us, with the uh, the stormy sea of a troubled conscience. And Jesus is able to speak a word of peace. The one who was made to endure the restless torment torment of sin's condemning power in your place, he now gives us possibility for peace. Peace with God for time and for all of eternity. There is a complete answer to the true need of your heart in Christ. If you run to the things this world offers, you will have to run towards other things. If you run to Christ, he is the complete answer. Complete. He's sufficient. There's no lacking in this child who will come. There's no deficiency in him. Everything that your heart truly needs, it's found fully in him. Last consideration that led to Zechariah's singing. Number four, God mercifully gives salvation. God mercifully gives salvation. We see this in 76 through 79. In 76, for just a brief moment, Zechariah in his song makes eye contact with his son. He looks at his son, John the Baptist. This is really helpful for us to know that the ordering thus far in this song is really important. God is primary. His son, John, is secondary. And that secondary nature is going to be the theme of John the Baptist's whole life. His whole purpose is to prepare people for God, for the visitation of God through the person of the Son of God. John's role is preparatory. It's preparatory. Prepa, I, man, I did this in trying to think. How do I say this word? Preparatory? Pep, it's a preparation for the one who is coming. 
John is preparing them to understand their most foundational need. Their most foundational need and, and what, what Zechariah sings about is that there is salvation that is going to come. How is salvation going to come? By the forgiveness of sins. By the forgiveness of sins. There's a foundational need to be forgiven of sins by God because their sins have offended a holy God. And friends, this is us too. This is the story of every one of us in this room, every one of us listening to this sermon. Good news this Christmas is that God has been merciful. That word just leapt off the page this week for me. Verse 78, because of the tender mercy of God. Their sin deserved abandonment, and he visited. Why? They deserved fury, but he gave them redemption. Why? He was faithful to a people that were unfaithful. Why? And literally, we just go through every question that has been raised. Why does he act this way? Because of tender mercy. Friends, tender mercy. If you view God as an authoritative, scowling tyrant, allow Zechariah's song to just reorient your heart. He is a God that overflows with tender mercy. Daryl Box says one word. Mercy characterizes the entire plan. The forerunner and the Messiah are gifts of mercy. There's a depth of feeling that informs his mercy for sinners like you and me. There's nothing more wonderful you will receive this Christmas than to receive the tender mercies of our loving God. We're all in need of it, no matter what's on your list. And the greatest need is mercy Mercy that God would withhold from us punishment for our sin and that he would then give us what we do not deserve. Our salvation can only be explained as a tender mercy of God. Christmas reminds us of tender mercies of God. He has exhausted God's wrath so that we would be free from the possibility of future wrath. He does not deal with us according to our sin, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Christmas is a fresh reminder of tender mercies. Tender mercies are not meant to just be sort of stored away as some intellectual category. Tender mercies are meant to melt your heart. Zechariah is not singing for your mind to expand. He's singing for your heart to soften. See the tender mercies of our great God this Christmas season. Him bending low to you is meant, it's, it's, it's intended for you then to bend low in worship as a response. Really, really, really hard for people to see God bending low for them to stand up in proud defiance. Let us labor to not grow indifferent to tender mercies. And verse 79 puts a bow on it all. The wonder of this tender mercy is that he is singing about a group of pilgrims that are on a journey. They are sitting in darkness. They are vulnerable to all the terrors of night. This was the condition of God's people in Zechariah's day. This is the condition of all people prior to coming to Christ. All sitting in dark because of our sin. No hope. Waiting to be devoured by death and by judgment. And then, on the horizon, there appears a glimmer of light. And the light gives light to all who sit in the darkness and in the shadow of death. That light gives sight 
And that sight gives way to show us the path of peace towards our God. Isaiah chapter 9 speaks of people who are living in darkness. Malachi says that the sun of righteousness would dawn. That's the description of salvation, that the sun of righteousness would dawn. There would be a light to dark people who are darkened. And all of this makes sense because the one who will come after John the Baptist, he will stand up during the Feast of Lights and he will declare, I am the light of the world. And so my non-Christian friends, if you've not turned from your sin and trusted in the death and resurrection of Jesus, you are still in the darkness of unforgiven sin. And that shadow that you are very well aware of, it's the shadow of death and it could open up at any moment. You do not want to meet your maker in your sin. And the good news of Christmas is that you don't have to. You don't have to. Oh, friend, would you throw yourself on the tender mercies of this God who will satisfy every longing of your soul? He will not promise you an easy life. In fact, he's guaranteed that it will be difficult. But he has promised you himself. And he will never leave you or forsake you. In his tender mercies, Christ has done what you couldn't do and what you were deserving of. Turn from your sin and place your faith and your trust in Christ alone. The sun has indeed risen. Morning has broken. The day star from on high has risen to give light to our blindness. And my Christian brothers and sisters, just remember this Christmas season, the darkness that you used to sit in. Remember. This song should remind you that the only reason you are now in the light is because of the tender mercies of your God. Bob said last week something about shorter sermons and an outline. And I hope you've seen it just unpacked. Zacharias does sing about being unchained, redemption, having total victory, a horn of salvation, having debt canceled, forgiveness, and a new day dawning. The Messiah brings light, and he is light. And where he is trusted, darkness flees, death is defeated, and his salvation brings peace. Friends, this song is a showstopper. It is a life changer. And we simply can't hear him sing and remain sluggish about Christmas. May the Lord bless his word and enable us this Christmas to enter into something of the joy of Zacharias' song. Amen? Let's pray. God, as your word has gone forth, we beg you now, we, try, we throw our everything on the promise of your word, that it will not return void. And so we ask in this moment, this moment of silence, that you would make it far more productive than just a moment in a service. Would you make clear to us how we respond? God, I pray for softened hearts. And I pray pray for quickened wills. And so draw us to yourself. Speak now, for your servants are listening.